Thank you for listening to the Proclaim Church Sermon Podcast. Proclaim's mission is to make Jesus known through gospel-centered worship, community, and mission. For regular meeting times, more information about our beliefs, or other information, check us out at proclaimkc.org. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-17. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You may be seated. Morning, everybody. Man, that passage from Psalm 25, asking God to uh, not remember the sins of our youth. I don't know if that sits heavy on any of you, like it does me, but sometimes the most uh, simple verse can strike you in a, in a, in a new and in deep way. Let me pray as we get started and, and as we prepare to look into this passage and as we consider God's grace on us this morning. Lord, we are uh, truly sinful. I mean, none of us can keep track of how often we have uh, disregarded, purposefully disregarded what we know that you want for us and what you know, what we know you want us to do, let alone all the times that we've um, sinned and, and maybe not even known in our hearts at that moment. Our hearts have deceived us. And Lord, as your word says, would you forgive our hidden faults? And Lord, uh, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that we would be. Um, struck by the greatness of your grace to us and, and uh, who you are, who you are, that, that you would be so gracious to us. Lord, I pray that in a, a world where um, there's just difficulty upon difficulty and we continue to see it growing and growing, and and it can become very discouraging. I pray, God, that you would allow us to, um, by the grace that you have given to us, be gracious and loving towards others, that 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 would be a channel through which people would come into your sovereign grace, God. We We thank you for what you have done. We pray that you would strengthen us, even as we hear your word this morning, to understand, to receive, to submit, to... be encouraged and to stand firm in it. 
We pray all this in your name. Amen. There's uh, perhaps no one since the Apostle Paul walked the earth whose life has impacted the church more than Augustine. The truths of today's passage have not only been defended well in his writings, but have also been illustrated well in his life. And so as we turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-17 today, I want to tell you a little bit about him, a little bit about Augustine, if you, if you don't know much about him. He was born in 354, near a city called Hippo, in what is now uh, the northern African country of Algeria. His mother, a believer for all of his life, prayed for him constantly, but Augustine had no interest in God. He had other things he was interested in. When he was 17, Augustine went to Carthage to finish his education in rhetoric. In fact, he would say that of his family that their only concern was that I should learn how to make a good speech and how to persuade others by my words. And so he went to Carthage and later described his time there like this. He said, I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. What a phrase. My real need was for you, my God, who are the food of the soul. I was not aware of this hunger. That's how Augustine described himself at 17, 18, 19, as he was in Carthage. He would live the next 15 years of his life pursuing two things. Two things were his pursuit in life for 15 years. His ambition to be the best speaker and orator he could be, and his lustful passions. Those were his two goals in life. Augustine was, as our passage last week said, one who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So how did such a smooth-tongued fornicator become the truth-defending, celibate church father that he's remembered as today? How did that happen? I'd argue it happened the exact same way that anyone that all of us have gone from rebel sinners to saved. God's sovereign grace. You see, without God's intervention, every person is deceived. All of us will pursue our own pleasures and selfish desires. That's what the Bible says. Sure, some some people's sinful pleasures and desires are a little bit more prettied up than others. I'll admit, a little more socially acceptable, perhaps, but it's all the same thing. It's lawlessness, unrighteousness. It's a rejection of God. It's a rejection of his word and his commands and of his truth. The question from last week shouldn't be, how can, how can people be condemned, right? Because Jesus himself made it clear that our own sinfulness has condemned us. The question that we should be left with and that this passage this morning kind of unpacks is how is anyone not condemned? How is there a single person 
in all the sinfulness that we have in our lives and all the sinfulness we have in the world, how is there a single person in all of the earth and all of human history outside of Jesus who is not condemned? This is exactly what Paul describes and gives thanks for in the passage this morning, that God, because of his own love, because of his own purpose, gives grace. And so the bottom line of our sermon is this, give thanks. Give thanks, as Paul does, for God's sovereign grace. You see, our passage starts by striking a contrast with what has come before it, with the end of last week's sermon and last week's passage, in contrast with those who are deceived, in contrast with those who, are, who pursue unrighteousness and, and are condemned, Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, Thessalonian church, for you, believers. Why is Paul so thankful? You see, rather than condemnation, it says, because God chose you to be saved. That's what Paul says. This is the starting point for anyone who would be freed from deception, sin, and condemnation. Not anything that we do, but by what God does on our behalf. You see, God's sovereign grace saves us, but, but how? Well, this passage helps us to understand a little bit. It starts with God's choosing. God chose you to be saved. We call this election. Ephesians 1, 4 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world even. John, Jesus says in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. See, God is supreme in all things. God is sovereign over all things, and that includes salvation. Praise God that it's so, because otherwise, I would never have cho- chosen God. Augustine says this, he says, quote, What was it then that he chose in those who were not good? For they were not chosen because of their goodness inasmuch as they could not be good without being chosen. How does God bring about that salvation? Well, it says right here in our passage, it says, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, we've talked about sanctification before. It's being this process of becoming more and more like Jesus. The term itself for sanctification is literally translated set apart. Those who are sanctified are set apart. The Spirit's work from the very start in us sets us apart. Do you know that, believer? Do you know that, church? That God, when he chose you and when he saves you, he sets you apart. The Spirit's work does this. The Spirit regenerates us, transforming us from our total bent towards sin into a new life in Christ. That setting apart continues as we grow in godliness and look less and less like the world, less and less like those who pursue unrighteousness. That's 
what God has saved us to and called us to is that we would look less and less like we did when we were in our own hissing cauldron of whatever. The Spirit is essential to bringing about salvation, and, and so is faith in the truth. The truth here being the gospel. God's choosing of us doesn't take away our responsibility to have faith. God's choosing of us enables us to choose him. The richness of this passage, it continues. What tool or what conduit does God use for the Spirit to do his sanctifying? What conduit does God use for us to believe the truth? Well, look at verse 14. It says, he called you through our gospel. That God calls us, he calls us to salvation through the external preaching of his word, the gospel. God uses fellow sinners, recovering sinners like you and me, speaking the gospel in order to bring new people into salvation in Christ. How amazing that a sovereign God would choose to use flawed people like you and me to do that. What a grace. You see, one of the next steps in Augustine's journey was a move to Milan when he was 30 years old, where he would meet a pastor by the name of Ambrose. Ambrose, in his own right, was a church father. He would clearly and articulate, articulately preach the gospel over and over again, and Augustine would listen. Of Ambrose, Augustine wrote, unknown to me, it was you, God, who led me to him so that I might knowingly be led by him to you. He was drawn, Augustine was drawn by the eloquence of Ambrose's sermons, but gradually he realized the truth of them as well. As he heard the gospel repeated over and over again, Augustine said, through Ambrose's gospel preaching, he heard God's voice saying, I am the God who is. But Augustine would admit that the battle was not yet over. You see, through the preaching of the gospel, we repent and we have faith. Through the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit renews every nook and every cranny of our lives. And this is why we repeat the gospel over and over and over again. This is why... Coleman was up here saying, hey man, the main thing that we do is we remember the gospel here because that is the most important thing. That's why we try to center everything we do. We try to center our lives on the gospel. God doesn't want us to just get a little wet with the gospel like when you run a sponge quickly underneath the faucet. No, God wants us to be completely submerged in the gospel and to squeeze us and to squeeze every ounce of air out of every pore that's in us so that the gospel can come and soak every pore into every pore of who we are. That's what God wants for us. That's how the Spirit changes us and renews us. It's through the preaching, the hearing, the submitting to the gospel. Augustine knew true faith wasn't merely intellectual assent to the existence of God. He knew he had not yet embraced Jesus as the only mediator between him and God, as the gospel tells us. 
He hadn't embraced Jesus as the sweetest joy of his life and the only place to find true enjoyment. Guys, this is what, this is what he created us for. This is what he saves us for. Indeed, that's how verse 14 ends. It says, to this he called you, what? So that you may obtain the glory of the Lord. Not so that you can do whatever you want. Not so that you can float through the rest of your life, just whatever. I'm going to go to church on Sunday morning sometimes and listen to a sermon. It's all cool, whatever. I did my thing. No. Do not sell yourself short, Christian. Do not sell yourself short of everything that God is offering you in him. Obtain the glory of our Lord. We all want happiness, and we all want joy, and we all want satisfaction, and we all want fulfillment, right? We're, it's wired in us to want these things. We look for it in all sorts of things here on earth, but we forget that God is the source of it. He was the source of it at the beginning, and he continues to be the source of it now in the only place that we can find it. You see, it was interesting. On an August day, Augustine was having a conversation with a friend about a, a monk that they knew and the sacrifices this man was making for God. And they were in this garden in, in Augustine snuck away to a place in the garden where he knew he wouldn't be interrupted by anyone. And he describes the situation. He, he curls up in a ball and he's tearing at his hair and he's hammering his forehead and he's crying and he's fighting the most important battle that you will ever, ever, ever fight in your life, knowing he needed to surrender himself to God's will, but being held back by what he later called mere trifles, the desires of this world that were interrupting his desire for God. And as he wrestled there in his heart. He says that he, that he heard something, a voice, a voice from somewhere he didn't know. And the voice said, take it and read. Take it and read. And he says, "Not no, thinking through all the games that I've ever thought, or remember kids playing, I, I've never, I never thought, Remember a phrase like that ever being repeated in any of those games. And so he said, I, I took it as this, a sign from God to, to take up and to read his word. And he rushes back to where his friend is and he picks up the Bible and he reads Romans 13, 13 through 14. And in that moment, the spirit through his word does the work and it all changes. Augustine would later write, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, you who are sweeter than all pleasure, though not to flesh and blood, who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor 
in themselves. It is Christ who has saved us. It is Christ who has freed us. And it is Christ himself who is our prize. Let me adapt an Augustinian illustration for you to make this point. At the end of my junior year of college, Amanda and I had been dating, and and Amanda was set to spend the summer uh, in Japan with her uncle, who was a missionary there, and and his family. They had three small children at the time, and she was going to go to help them with what they were doing. And we had talked, and we had planned on getting married the next year at some point, and And I had planned on asking her when she got back from Japan, but on a sort of a a whim, I went ring shopping, and I found, you know, just the right ring that was exactly what she wanted. And so I bought it, and I decided to quickly make some plans, and a few days later, I asked her to marry me, giving her the ring that while she was in Japan for 10 or whatever weeks it was, that she might have it as a constant reminder of me for when she got home. Now, let's say that she got that ring, and she just loved that ring so much that that when she was about to go to Japan, she said, you know what? Thank you so much for this ring. This ring is so fantastic. I love this ring so much. You know, actually, I know we had planned on having these weekly phone calls. Now, this is, you know, a while back, right? So you had to like set up a time to, to call like on a, like a phone, you know? I don't know if you remember those. Um, I know we set up these weekly phone calls where I would get up super early in the morning and you say super late at, at night and we could, and the time would be, you know, so we could talk and whatever. But, but you know what? That's just, like the ring is enough. I really don't need to talk to you. Like this ring is so great. It's really all I need. And then, and then when she returned, if she said, you know, like I have... I know we are supposed to like plan a wedding and stuff, but I just really don't want to spend time with that because I just, I'm, I'm just really enjoying this ring. And actually, I don't even have time to spend time with you because like this ring is just so fantastic that you know, I, I, just, I, I, would want to, I just want to hang out and look at it for a while and just kind of toy with it on my finger and just enjoy this ring. Could you imagine if she reacted that way? That would be ridiculous, would it not? You'd be like, you, you totally lost the point of what the ring is even about. What if she said, hey, well, if my love for you ever wanes a little bit, if you could just send me a second ring, just, just to remind me, be great. It's, it's a laughable idea. Uh, to quote Augustine, the pledge, the ring, is given her by the betrothed just that in his pledge, he himself may be loved. God then has given you all of these things. Love him who made them. It's it's in the giver of all good things that you find, that we find all we need. As Augustine said, maybe perhaps his most famous quote, because you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless, Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you, friends. You will find no rest in the things of this world. You will find no rest from searching and looking and wanting and taking 
and trying until you find rest in him. Verse 15. Verse 15 of our passage, here we have a shift in the text. Paul says, so then, or, or because of the reality of this sovereign grace that he has given us from God that, that results in our salvation, what should we do then? And Paul's answer is this, stand firm, stand firm in him. Not just, not just to stand firm in the persecutions that they are facing, and this church is facing severe persecution, but specifically to hold on to the traditions they were taught, to hold on to this gospel message that Paul had delivered to them. This is what we're to do. See, the persecution and the teaching, I think that they overlap. You can't really have one without the other. Almost certainly, false teaching was a product of or was a result of persecution. As people were persecuted, it was easier to begin to shift the teaching of the church to something that would make it a little bit easier to survive in the, the, the climate, in the culture, in the city that they lived in. But friends, Paul says, do not do that. Stand firm. There is always a desire to teach what pleases men in order to divert afflictions. Always. There is always a desire to change our opinion to please people because it's hard when we don't. Paul says stand firm. In light of our salvation, we are to stand firm in God's word. This is, man, this is such a reality that we see in the life of Augustine. Near the end of his life, he was making a list of all of the heresies, all the false teachings that he had defended against, and he had got to 80 different false teachings before he actually died in his, you know, listing them all out. He wrote over 5 million published words, what, almost a millennia before the printing press was even invented. 5 million words defending God's word. The biggest of those is the topic of this very sermon, the absolute necessity, not just for a bit of God's grace, as if humanity can mostly be good and they just need a little push from God. No, the absolute necessity of the work of God's sovereign grace, not just for salvation, but for everything. We need God's sovereign grace for every minute of every day, even as Christians. This is exactly what Paul in our passage is, is emphasizing. That very quickly, the attention moves from what we're supposed to do and standing firm back to God and our need of him to empower us to do what he commands. Augustine said it like this. He said, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Command what you will and grant what you command. God commands of us, stand firm, and at the same time, it's only by his grace that we're even able to do that. God's sovereign grace not only saves us, as Paul reiterates in verse 16, making it clear that by God's grace, we are loved. By God's grace, we're given eternal comfort and hope through salvation, but also God's sovereign grace sustains us. It sustains us. Here's the prayer, the request that Paul asks of Jesus and of God the Father, that, that by that same sovereign grace, 
that saved them, that he would sustain them, that he would comfort their hearts and establish them in every good work and word, even though God's love for us in salvation should be enough to fuel us to love others, right? It should be enough. It's so magnificent that it should be enough to fuel us to love others as he loved us all the time, no matter what. Paul knows that that God is exceedingly gracious, that he gives us grace upon grace, and he knows our weaknesses. God does. And God knows that even though we understand that we've been given everything in Christ, we still fail. We still act selfishly. And so God sustains us through his grace, establishing our hearts, giving us a resolve to love others by his power. And not just the easy people, right? Uh, you, you all have people in your life that are easy to love. People who love you well. People who treat you respectfully and admire you. People who are gracious to you and serve you. It's easy to love those people. But God calls us to love the difficult ones as well. He calls us to love the ones that may never love us back. Because he calls us to love like he loves. For Jesus himself said in Luke 6 that it's no gain if we only love those who love us. Even even sinners do that. But his call is to love the unlovely and the unlovable And I don't know about you, but I need God's grace to be able to do that. I cannot do that on my own. And yet even in this, there's this wonderful hope. Even in this command, there's something so beautifully true because because the reality is, is we're more unlovable than we realize. And yet this tells us that God loves us more than we can understand, more than we can fathom. And that's the gospel. Friend, if if you are here and you feel just completely unlovable, how could anyone love me? How could God love me? It's just ridiculous to me. me. Let me tell you this. You don't understand how unlovable you are. And yet, the Bible is is not lying. It is not exaggerating when it says, God loves you more. See, in this prayer of Paul for the Thessalonians, we see just how holistic God's sustaining grace is for us. He sustains us in our hearts, in our emotions, in our wills, changing us from the inside out, out, changing our affections, changing our desires. He sustains us externally, changing our behaviors and our habits, giving us strength to obey him when it's difficult. And so a man filled with lustful passions, having a concubine for 15 years and a mistress and who knows what else to boot, a man whose only concern was his own self-advancement and his ambition and his vanity and his speaking, turns away from those things and commits his life to sharing the deep joy and satisfaction that he has in his Savior and in his Savior's truth and becomes a tool for God's sovereign grace to the church 
for centuries to come. That's what God's grace can do. And, and we, what are we to do in light of that? Well, I think what we're to do is we're to stand firm. Stand firm because God has done it and God will do it. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in, in God's word. Submit to it in your life. Fall in love with it and fall in love with the one, most importantly, who wrote it. Stand firm when others push against it because, friends, they will. Stand firm in prayer and pray for God's help to do it. And really, that's where we have to start and finish, asking him to change our heart because there's no significant change that's going to happen in my heart or your heart that didn't start, that doesn't start with desperately seeking him who gives sovereign grace. Friends, if you don't know how you can possibly endure what you are going through, pray. Ask God to sustain you, to hold you fast, to give you clarity, to help you by a sovereign hand. If you are like Augustine was in his early years, totally lost, pray. Pray to God that he would reveal himself to you, that he would open up your heart, that he would open up your mind, that he would take your heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. Pray. One of my favorite parts of Augustine's story is actually about his mom. See, his mom, Monica, prayed for her son from an early age. Augustine later would say that his mom shed more tears for his spiritual death than most moms would shed over the physical death of their son. There's one story that's recorded where Monica goes to an old bishop for counsel about Augustine and what to do about her lost son. And the bishop responds to her, leave him alone. Just pray to God for him. It cannot be that the son of these tears should be lost. And so for years after that, she prays and she prays and she prays and she prays. And it didn't happen when she wanted and it didn't happen how she wanted. But in the end, God granted her more than she could have ever prayed for, more than she could have ever thought of. I just imagine her in heaven. Considering a church, reading God's word and saying, her son is such a beautiful example of this passage. Never could she have imagined to pray for such a thing. In fact, when Augustine came to her and, and told her what God had done in his life, this is how he described her reaction. She was jubilant with triumph and glorified you who are power enough and more than powerful enough to carry out your purpose beyond all our hopes and our dreams. She was thankful. She was thankful for God's sovereign grace. We ought to be thankful for his sovereign grace as well. And friends, that grace was most evident, was most incredibly portrayed on the cross. The grace of the cross is our greatest example of sovereign grace, not only in it showing God's mercy to us, but as God's word say, says that that God purposed to happen, that God orchestrated Christ on the cross 
for us. That all of it happened according to his sovereign plan. And so I want to take a moment as we prepare for communion to consider God's sovereignty. Would you, would you take a moment and pray? Would you ask God to reveal to you how his sovereign grace has been at work in your life? Would you pray? Would you pray for his sovereign grace to to save you and to sustain you? Let's pray for a minute.